0: Welcome and thanks for tuning in to the Victorian Aboriginal News Van Talks podcast. I'm your host, Charles Parkiner.
1: Victorian Aboriginal News acknowledges and pays respect to traditional owners and custodians across Australia. We acknowledge the elders who have gone before, those who currently lead their communities and those who will follow in years and generations to come.
0: As Aboriginal businesses across Australia achieve greater success and prominence, working quietly in the background are individuals and organisations that are setting foundations upon which those successes can grow. Among them is Dr Michelle Evans. She's the Director of the Dylan Duar Centre for Indigenous Business Leadership at the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Business School. She is a recognized authority in the areas of Indigenous leadership and entrepreneurship and is also co founder and program director of the award winning Murrah Indigenous Business Masterclass program. I was fortunate to catch up with her for a yarn just north of the border in Albury. Michelle, welcome to the Van Talks podcast.
1: Thanks. Charles, I'm really delighted that you've come to visit me here in Albury. <laughs>
0: Michelle, let's kick it off by starting to get an understanding of what are some of the challenges that face Aboriginal people in starting up businesses. Do they exist or are they just in our mind?
1: Mm. There are a lot of challenges, but I really want to just start by saying that uh, Aboriginal, businesses are a real phenomenon across all of Victoria and all of Australia, really, and they're growing and they're not just micro, they're, they're big. So there's a whole range of challenges depending on where you are in your business mm. life sto- cycle, whether you're small or big. And But one of the major challenges for all business, but specifically for Aboriginal business, is raising capital, for their business. So when you start a business just normally, everyone just kind of goes to their friends and family for that sort of money to, to kick it off, bootstrapping themselves, yeah. if you will. Of course, our coffers are, are less than full, if you will, uh, across our family networks and, and, and in our own selves. And this is about this broader yarn that we're having in the community about building... Wealth and transgenerational wealth transfer. So, so, these are so that's
0: actually things... a problem that's facing Aboriginal people. And Absolutely, because because of the social impact of what's happened in past generations, there's not as enough of that transgenerational wealth that mums and dads, for example, the bank of mum and dad for Aboriginal communities doesn't exist as much as it does in non-Aboriginal. Is that what you're saying? Exactly what right. I'm saying.
1: So, and then there's also a real difficulty or lack of trust between our community and some of the financial institutions that I think has built up over colonisation across the 246 years, Mm. um, where people may not feel that they want to go in and get debt um, to kind of kickstart their business or wish to thinking about what does that mean for my family or what if I have to leverage uh, a mortgage if if they're really um, being able to build that up for their family. So there's a lot of risk also and I think that is a social and a psychological risk. And so it's all about security as well, isn't it? And, of course, business is about taking risks and, and being out there and mm. um, giving things a go. But I, I think there are a number of challenges in the kind of social history of how Aboriginal businesses have come up and we've had a lot of grant programs or support programs in the past, mm. but I think it's quite a different space now. There's actually just so much out there. It's really hard, uh, even for me, kind of having a view across the sector to understand all of what's going on. When you're
0: saying it's different, what's different in particular?
1: In particular, there are very many more Aboriginal business support providers, and a lot of them are Indigenous-led as well across the country, so whether it be Chambers of Commerce or different organisations that have grown up and are starting to leverage grant funding out of government in, in a way to be an intermediary to Aboriginal businesses or the Indigenous business sector moreover. And so you've got a lot of options now. There's stuff happening at local government level, states, obviously federal as well and then all of these not for profits there's philanthropic players getting in there there's impact investors hanging around there's there's just a lot going on well, in the indigenous look, business when space. you're
0: talking about local governments though which is an area of particular interest are you talking about indigenous purchasing policies or are you talking yeah. about actual physically or financially investing in local aboriginal businesses i think
1: both of those are true i think there's been a real policy turn towards wanting to engage with Aboriginal businesses at the local government level. We're seeing some traction in the procurement space for local governments putting up a procurement policy and, of course, what really makes procurement policies work is having a target and being able to be accountable to that target. So reporting it publicly would be the best approach where... It just becomes real. It's not just words on a paper or a good intention. It becomes rubber hits the road. So now,
0: We've talked about this before. We've talked about Indigenous purchasing policies, especially in the local government area. And um, one of the issues I brought up to then was black cladding. Mm-hmm. How do organisations actually determine what's a fair dinkum Aboriginal-owned organisation and how can you be sure those funds are actually going back to... Aboriginal community, Aboriginal people. So Mm. what's the little guide on determining what's black cladding and who's black cladding?
1: Yeah, look, it's an excellent question and it certainly keeps a lot of people up at night and and thinking about this particular area. But I'll say a few things about that. What we have noticed um, is that Businesses that are on registries, whether that be Supply Nation or Chambers or other registries that are around, are visible. Sometimes, not all of them, but Supply Nation, for instance, some of the chambers as well, have a verification process in their registration and they're able to go back and and get documentation for people's um, certification of Aboriginality and have that on their records and be able to hand on the heart, say, this is an Aboriginal business. But it's not just that, it's also... So that's the ownership question then you've got the control question. Who is controlling this business? Mm. And so a lot of these players like Supply Nation the Chambers actually go into businesses and have a look, watch them, observe and, and try and get an idea. They look at um, the founding documents and understand the percentage ownership and... And also understand some of the individual's um, backgrounds, whether they've had managerial training or whether they've got expertise in whatever good or service their particular business is focused on. So there's a lot of that. So you have ownership, you have control – And management. And these kind of three parts of understanding how Indigenous businesses are working, um, whether these businesses are Indigenous, is a really important piece of information. And currently, the federal government is doing a big consultation on reforming the Indigenous procurement policy. And this particular question around defining Aboriginal businesses or Indigenous businesses um, very strictly will then lead to, of course, a definition for black cladding. And what people have been worried about before, and we can totally understand, and we've all seen potentially organisations like this, is a non-Indigenous company or person taking Aboriginal person for a ride by by making them that 50% player in the business. So is the solution to just knock out all 50% um, businesses and say only ownership of 51% is going to be an Aboriginal business. Will that solve this problem That's something perception? Though, that, all right, right? But
0: that's something, though, that we assume that the federal government in this new body of work is going to be looking at and advising. But right now, for organisations that are implementing RAPs, for example, where they want to have that 3 to 4% of Indigenous business purchasing... What do they do? What do they look for? Is it simply you've got to look for in Victoria the Kinaway and Supply Nation accreditation? Is that enough? Do you think?
1: Look, it is. It's the best we have for now. Mm. Uh, however, you know that is just. Um a section of the Aboriginal business community, and this is this is another piece. Like, not all Aboriginal businesses are registering, and why why wouldn't you register if you're going to become more kind of visible to yeah. people who want to purchase your, your goods and services? It's it kind of brings up a lot of questions, I think. Um, but yes, that's how you would go about it, unless you have a long-term relationship with the individual or the firm, and you can do your own due diligence. I mean, that's, of course, the other option. There's the easier way, which is we've kind of uh, created this role for um, Supply Nation and the Chambers to do this work on behalf of the business sector, to build trust in the Aboriginal business sector by doing these sort of processes of verification.
0: What is it that's... Holding people back from really opening up their eyes to look at viable Aboriginal alternatives to some of the big suppliers that they may have.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I heard recently I hadn't heard it before um, that Aboriginal businesses from this perspective that you talk of, are like the triple C: it's culture, it's consulting, it's construction. Yeah. You know. And I was um, well when I look at the actual numbers of businesses and where they are in which industries, those are some big ones. I must say that construction obviously is the biggest, and, and consulting certainly up there. But so's health, and so's social assistance, and so's all sorts of different things, including um, uh, administration services. I mean, there's all sorts. But what you from the procurer's perspective. I think it's an interesting um, thing to look through their eyes. They've got a policy to implement. They've probably got some discretional spend on the side and whether or not it goes into addressable spend for the entire business. So it makes it easier to commit to targets if they can just pick certain things and, and address them quite quickly. So that then comes back on the procurers to go, how am I going to develop long-term and transformative relationships with suppliers? How can I build up Aboriginal businesses over you know, a five-year contract or more where they can become my best supplier in that particular category? Uh, how can we get more into relationships between category managers? And, of course, this is exactly why... We need players like the Chambers and Supply Nation and also um, the celebration kind of platforms. This is really one of the reasons we've been doing Indigenous Business Month is to really okay. socialise yeah. the diversity of Aboriginal businesses across Australia. I think that's really important. But also what what it is to be an Aboriginal business um what it, what it means uh, and the impacts that business owners are having on their own families and communities. We get into this interesting piece, and I, I was really reflecting on it as I'm developing our submission for the federal government's IPP reform process, where they're asking about further reporting from Aboriginal businesses to tell the stories about how they impact community. And I'm thinking... Gosh, as soon as we start talking about the different way in which business success is perceived by Indigenous entrepreneurs and business owners, now there's these extra reporting requirements to fulfil kind of social concerns that the government has that they want to address. But for me, that is their concerns at a policy level. It is not the responsibility of businesses to really be reporting that. um, The government needs to go out and find out that information themselves.
0: Well, let's go back to the responsibility of businesses. and It's all well and good for suppliers to sit there and have a great service Mm. or a product and be bemoaning their fate that they're not getting onto preferred supplier lists. But what's on their shoulders in order to get out there and be noticed because you can't just be a black organisation, sit back and expect the world to come and offer you everything.
1: Yeah, it's a hustle. That is for sure. You've got to get out there. You've got to um, build relationships. You have to meet the minimum standards and um, certifications of your industry. Yeah. You have to meet those kind of basic hygiene levels in, in your industry that you are so that even, that is off the table. Now it's about what sort of business offering you can place. You really do need, I think, a good understanding of your strategy and what you're bringing is different to other players in the sector. So that requires quite a strategic mindset as well. But gosh, I can see all the business owners that I know who are out there doing all sorts of trade shows and and taking phone calls and meetings every week with all brand new people to expand their networks. They're very... They're very, very busy people.
0: And what about Chambers of Commerce, as you mentioned, okay, Supplier Nation, Kinaway down in Victoria? From your perspective and from eyewitness accounts, people to whom you've spoken, what's the real value Mm. at the end of the day for the Aboriginal businesses? What's going to motivate them really to become a Supplier Nation and a Kinaway-endorsed organisation?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, what they are doing, their job, their role, and maybe I'll speak more to Supply Nation, is is it's, it's about building a market for our Aboriginal businesses. Yeah. So They spend a lot of time with, I assume, I mean, I'm not inside the organisation, but with members that are corporates or governments, not-for-profits, who are going to purchase from Aboriginal businesses, and they do a training and they work with those players who have uh, reconciliation action plans or Indigenous procurement targets and they really socialise this idea of excellent Indigenous businesses. Chambers have a bigger kind of remit in a lot of ways and each different one is of course um, separate and different themselves. Sometimes it's more advocacy, sometimes it's more support but again, they're about creating that market. And I think, honestly, about building trust for doing transaction and doing business with indigenous businesses and that's a huge job and we really need those players out there talking to corporates talking to government and talking up aboriginal business so why wouldn't you want to be a part of an organization that is really laying a lot of the groundwork for you and with you and also you know very passionate People like, dare I say, in Victoria, Karen Melward, who has been around for so many years, who has dedicated the last 20 years nearly to establishing the Aboriginal economic development space in Victoria, the Aboriginal business space, and uh is in there influencing government and really holding them to account on their policies no, and a bit of a so that yeah. sort of advocacy is inside of chambers drives the chambers which is why they become this kind of trusted voice and trusted advisor not just for governments but them for corporate organizations and and the bigger kind of non-indigenous um chambers of commerce and and they're the ones you really want to be a part of, I dare say.
0: Let's now get back to you and why you're here. Now, Dylan Duar is... It's only been around a couple of years. It's certainly emerging as quite a force within the Australian Aboriginal business space. Give us a bit of a thumbnail dipped in tar sketch...
1: Uh, Dylan Dewar come out of our conversations with the Murrah alumni, the Murrah being a, a business program we run at the Melbourne Business School and it's about 12 years old. And the alumni kept on calling for research into the Indigenous business sector. So we convened a round table session in 2019 and out of that, Charles came the idea for Dillon Dua, and that Dillon Dua couldn't just be about research. It needed to continue to offer programs to the Indigenous business sector right. and also do community engaged or democratise Indigenous business education out into the regions and in remote Australia. So, out of that was born Dylan Doer. and as you say, we're about two and a half years old now, and we've been able to kind of bring together a lot of the work. That I've been leading over the past decade um, with the alumni and with different academics all across the world to to really start to get a bit of traction on uh, what needs to, what what are the building blocks we need working with Indigenous business sector, and and then thinking a little bit more globally, to to make the case for uh, Indigenous businesses and Indigenous leadership. And for me, a lot of the success factors of of Dillendua is about being there as a research centre for the Indigenous community and I'm really excited that over the past two years um, we have had communities and community based organisations um, and different different kind of national bodies come to us and ask us to do research with them and I think that's that's really very very exciting
0: but what does it mean for the average Aboriginal business around Victoria is it going to have or uh, around Australia is it going to have an impact this work?
1: Yes, I think it does.
0: So let's be specific. What are some of those impacts that you are hoping that it will have?
1: So we have um, bootstrapped ourselves and we fund the Indigenous Businesses and Corporation Snapshot Study. Um, Every year or so, we do that. And what what that is, is before Dylan Dewar's study on this, there was no real empirical or statistical information to show us exactly what the Indigenous business sector looked like, at least from the registries, but not just one registry, but all of them together, right. and looking at their data with in partnership with the Australian Bureau of Statistics, we're able to understand how much revenue Indigenous businesses as a whole are bringing to the economy. How many employees are there across Australia? So what does that mean
0: for Aboriginal businesses? It is
1: about building trust in the economy. It is about showing that Aboriginal businesses are not just small micro-businesses or as you said, cultural uh, arts and tourism or consulting businesses, that they are all different types, that they're all over Australia and they're doing quite well, they're quite long term and by talking about this we can we can start to dispel some of the stereotypes that are That we were that talking about there. earlier yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. But surely
0: that's going to take quite a while because you're talking about changing mindsets of people, of organisations. Of course. So providing that information to the ABS and for that information then and the realisation to seep through to the big purchasing powers within big orgs. You've got to be looking at it, come on, about a decade or so?
1: Easily. A decade, 20 years. I mean, this is a long-term engagement, but we need to be indefatigable. We need to do it every year or every few years. We need to show how the growth is happening and what it means. And I think that that it's just no small task. We also need to continue to develop the business acumen of the Indigenous business sector and we need to support all of that, which means just more training, more opportunities for Indigenous business owners to have access to the best business education in Australia And I think that will make a massive impact. I'm already seeing that with the Murrah firms. We've got nearly 250 across Australia. And Mm. they're doing incredibly well. And they're often showcased as some of the best Indigenous businesses in Australia. So
0: who are the people you want contacting you?
1: Indigenous businesses who who want to, um, you know, take it to the next level. You're making some money, um, you're doing okay, but you want to really grow your firm. That's the sort of um, business that should be thinking about doing the Murrah program. But
0: what would they be expecting to encounter in the Murrah program?
1: Oh, doing... Mainstream business education in an Aboriginal contextualised cohort on strategy, on marketing, on understanding how to negotiate for their firm.
0: This isn't a six-hour masterclass online course, is it? This no, this is
1: Fair Dinkum Studies. Studies at Melbourne Business School. Yeah, and it, it, we bring Mob in, you know, three times, four days each time, so they can build a network for themselves because oftentimes Indigenous business owners are pretty lonely doing their whole thing, yeah. very busy. So being able to have that Indigenous business network, which is also what the chambers are doing, you know, building that community because we need it. We need community to feel prosperous and to generate new ideas and, and to really help us um, find new people to do business with. So that, I think, pay attention to your network. definitely. The research work we're doing will continue to try and influence um, at the more governmental, even with the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia work we've been doing, to really try and open their eyes to say, what can we do to make things to address the capital issue for Indigenous business?
0: Michelle, we'll need to wind it up now. I think what we might do in a couple of months is actually come back, have a yarn with some of the Murrah graduates. So until then, Michelle, thanks so much indeed. Thank you. For a full transcript of this interview, visit the Victorian Aboriginal News website at vicaboriginalnews.com.au. Until our next episode, stay safe and stay informed.